Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. Good to see you. My name is uh, Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. We are continuing this morning in a series that we've been doing all fall, although fall just arrived about 10 days ago, uh, in the prophet Isaiah. And I've heard from many of you that this has been an encouraging uh, walk through Isaiah, so we're continuing in that for the next couple of weeks. We've come this morning to Isaiah chapter 55. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you're welcome to. We're going to read the entire chapter because it really is one unit, and we're going to work our way through it uh, from beginning to end. If you're at home, it'll be on the screen as you're watching. Uh, it'll also be on the screen behind me, and one other place is printed for you in the worship folder. So you really have no excuse not to get your eyes on these words somewhere and follow along with us as we read. Again, a beautiful passage of Scripture, probably familiar in some, in some cases uh, to some of you. Beginning in verse 1, let's read together from Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 55. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make you, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold... I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon and then the Lord begins to speak, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens, excuse me, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and that shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. So we can have high expectations as we come to his word this morning because of what he says his word does there, right? He who has ears, let him hear. Open your hearts and open your ears as God speaks to us. Let me ask this question. It's the question that we posed at the beginning of the service in our um, reading of the law. What do we have to be doing to be doing the works of God? What are God's expectations of us? What is the substance of what we do as people of faith? That's the question posed to Jesus in John chapter 6, and I wonder how you would answer. You might say, well, we go to church, you know, we do that, we, we give to charitable causes, we volunteer our time, these are the things that we are to do, and those are all wonderful things to do, but they would be the wrong answers. The question itself is flawed, because it assumes that the main thing in our relationship with God is our doing. But Jesus makes it very clear. The better question would be to have asked, what must I believe? Because the only doing that matters is believing. Isn't that what he said when they come to him and said, what do we got to do? Tell us what to do. What is the doing that we must fill our lives with? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe. 
It's a challenging interruption there by Jesus. He means to teach us that you do not start with faith and then revert back to effort, though we are very prone to do so. You become a Christian by believing, and then you grow spiritually by believing more deeply, not by trying harder. The gospel is the A through Z and not just the ABCs of Christianity, which means that every, I say this all the time, every behavior problem is a believing problem. Every problem with sin is solved, not with greater effort, but with a greater understanding of God's grace to us in Jesus. And so that brings us to Isaiah 55. One commentator has called this chapter a plethora of imperatives. And it is. It's a call to action. He's telling us all of these things to do. Come and buy and drink and eat and all of this. But the action that he calls us to, the doing, is actually believing. That's why I grouped those two passages together. The words in verses 8 and 9... My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great are my thoughts above yours. That really could serve as a summary of the enti- this entire section of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40. Our whole problem is that our thoughts are not like God's thoughts. We are full of wrong thoughts about what God is like, and who we are, and how we fit into the world, and why things go the way they do, and what we should expect and can expect from the future. But we are created, not self-made beings. Which means the thoughts that matter most are God's thoughts, not our thoughts. Because truth is not in here for us to make up up all our own. The truth, truth is out there. And so the key, it's, it's, in, it's in what God has said and in what God has done. And so the key to a more integrated and happy life is to conform your internal feelings to external reality not the reverse which is the current momentum in our culture to be confronted by God's authoritative word correcting your wrong thoughts and then rearranging your whole life around God's thoughts and his ways and the words that we use to describe that process are faith and repentance these are two words that you need to have loaded up in your vocabulary if you're going to live as a Christian in the world Faith and repentance, and the two always go together. And that really is what we see here in Isaiah 55. We see it as a call to faith and repentance. And so that forms the outline for us this morning. We want to ask this question, what is faith? What is faith? And that's verses 1 through 5. What is faith? And then I want to plead with you why you should believe. So what is faith and why should we believe? But secondly, what is repentance? And that's really verses 6 and 7, 8 and 9. And so I want to ask, what is repentance? And I want to plead with you, as he does here, why you should be repenting. So what is faith and why we should believe? And what is repentance and why we should repent? And then, beginning in verses 10 and below, is really, we're we're led into this idea of a whole lifestyle of faith and repentance. And we just want to see what that looks like and then how you can sustain it. Because that's what it means to be growing into becoming more and more like Jesus, which is what God intends to do in our lives. So here's the thing. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, this is all new to you, your first step in the spiritual life is to turn to God in faith and to turn away from your own thoughts and your own ways. That's what it means to believe. But if you're not new to the faith, if you're long in the faith, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been in church your whole life, then the way forward, the path for you to new spiritual power is to do the same thing. To turn to God in faith even more deeply and to turn away from your unbelief. 
the wrong thoughts about God that you've settled into. And so no matter where you are on the spectrum of faith this morning, the work before us is the same. What is the work? The work is to believe. And by believing, to be repenting. So let's just walk through the text together first. What it means to have faith. What it means to have faith and why you should believe. God is inviting us here. He's inviting us to believe. He's inviting us to faith. And we see all of these images of what faith is. Faith is coming. It's seeking. It's eating. Faith is delighting. All of those in the first few verses there of the text. One of the commentators had a helpful analogy. He said that reading Isaiah is like hearing the cries of, a street, of street vendors. So every Saturday, if you want to find me ever, about 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, you can find me in the farmer's market in downtown Winter Haven. I like to go down there and walk. I walk my dog, and it's been really nice weather here recently. And the vendors there are so polite. They hand out free samples. You can get lots of fun things. Uh, they have doggy treats and water bowls for the dogs. And what I like especially is they're not too pushy, uh, and it's just pretty low, you know, low pressure. But I can tell you, if you've ever been in the third world, we were talking about this with some friends who are missionaries in Africa, but in India, I have more experience there. In India, they have these things called bazaars. They actually have bazaars. And they're the neighborhoods that get transformed overnight into uh, this area that's just crowded with booths that are all basically selling the exact same things to stupid Westerners like me. And every owner stands out in front of his booth and aggressively tries to get you to come in and to buy his stuff, which is the same stuff that the guy right next to him has, and so forth. And it's loud, and it's overwhelming, and you literally have to fight them off. Sometimes you have to, like, physically push them away. And they don't take no for an answer. They follow you down the street. They're incredibly pushy. And that is the imagery here, I think, that Isaiah wants us to see, that our lives are increasingly a cacophony of voices saying, buy this. Do this. You need this. This is the thing that will really make you happy. You need to come and, and get it from me, not from him. But faith is in the overwhelming experience of all of the things that the advertisements and our exposure to media and all of the things that happen in our lives. Faith is, in the midst of all of that, learning to incline your ear to hear God's voice and tune out all the other voices. And to come to him for what you need. So look at verse one, come, he says, multiple times in those first couple of verses, come, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And water is an image of daily necessities. And so faith is looking to God, trusting him, relying on him for all your needs. But he says in verse one, come buy wine and milk and wine symbolizes joy. And so faith then is knowing God is your supreme happiness in all of life. Milk goes even further, it symbolizes abundance satisfaction, the goodness of the garden. The, the land God gave to the people was a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. And so it's coming to God to, to find that kind of abundant life that only he can give. So to say you are a person of faith means your whole life is directed towards God as the source and object of your daily needs, your deepest joys, and your highest good. But here's the thing. Faith isn't coming to God for what you need. Faith is learning to come to God as the thing you need. You don't come to him to get from him things. You come to him to get him. Because he is the thing you know you ultimately need. So that's the call, the call to faith. But let me just ask, or let me, let me say, 
but why? Why should you believe? Because that is really what Isaiah is doing here. Is he is, he's calling us to faith, but then he is impressing upon us the reasons why we should believe. And it's a simple argument. You should believe. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you should believe. If you're here and you're a Christian, you really should keep believing. And here's why. Because of the freeness of the offer. This is the best deal you're ever going to find. BOGO at Publix has nothing on this. It's absolutely free. Again, the image is the marketplace. You take your money, right, and you go and you buy what you need or you want from whoever has it. But there's a huge surprise here because God tells us, come. He invites us to come, but look, he says, come without money. Come without money so that you can buy without price. Now, you might not believe that, so let's read it. Verse one, come, buy without money and without price. So what is the lesson? Water, milk, life, salvation. These are not obtained by human purchase, but by divine grace. They are free gifts, the gifts of God. And still there are those who labor and spend the money they've earned, but that is not the way of faith. The life of faith, where God is your great comfort and joy, is unlocked to you only when you realize the freeness of the offer. We do not exhaust ourselves in order to pay for what we need with God. That's not the way it works. In Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul contradict, or excuse me, contrasts faith and works, and he says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, there are those who insist on paying their way with God, but that is not faith. It's works. It's the opposite of faith, which is the opposite of works, because he says the opposite in the next verse, but the one who does not work, but believes in him, and he goes on. So the only way to get from God is to accept what he gives as a gift, which is to say, the only thing you need to buy from God is nothing. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. All you need is nothing, but here's the thing, here's the problem. Nothing is the one thing that nobody has. We all have something. We all have something we're trying to buy God off with, some bargaining chip. Maybe you're a religious person. And in your mind, that counts as a wage that you can use to buy God off so that he will accept you and love you because you're a good person. Bless you. Everybody has something. Everybody has something that they're laboring to achieve. It might be being a good student or being a good parent or being a success at work or being a paragon of health and fitness. We all have something, some form of righteousness, some form of achievement that is all our own. And what we do sinfully is we use it as a currency to try to purchase the life that we want, but that's religion. Religion imagines a God who has to be bribed. It was true of all of the religions in the ancient Near Eastern world. Baal had to be bought with devotion and with gifts and with sacrifices. And the same religious impulses are alive and well today, religion. But Christianity is not religion, it's grace. And so Tim Keller, who's written a lot about this, he said this. He said, pagan temple worship was based on the idea that it is our job to attract and merit the attention of the God. So you come in and you make sacrifices, you show with great pageantry your honor of the God and so forth, and then the God sees 
and, and blesses you and gives you what you want. He says every other religion says you go and you sacrifice, you hurt, you cut yourself, you throw your body into the flames and you do all of that to show the God your love and honor and attract his attention. But only Christianity in the whole history of the world claims that God has come, that he sacrificed, that he became poor and gave it all away, that he was hurt, that he was cut. That he, as it were, threw his body into the flames and he did it to attract you. See, water, milk, and wine, these things, they're not free. I, didn't, I don't remember much about 10th grade economics, but I remember Tins Taffel. Does anybody else remember that? There is no such thing as a free lunch, however that goes. Tins Taffel. These things are not free. It is not because there is no price that he can offer it this way to us. It is because the price is not ours to pay. It has been paid. Jesus Christ has paid with his obedient life, with his sacrificial death. He is our payment. So we do not come with money in our hands. We come with nothing in our hands. That's the only way to come. That's how this transaction works. let me say one more thing before we move on and that is this that everything that is not God and that's a big right I try to figure out everything that is not God if you try to make it your source if you try to make it your savior everything that is not God it will demand that you exhaust yourself as payment and then fail to deliver the results so listen again to what he says here in verse 2 why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And why do you keep laboring for that which does not satisfy? Friends, listen, career success is not bread. I know the kids are in the room this morning, and I'm sorry for that, but let me say, the best sex you've ever had cannot satisfy you at the deepest levels. There is no relationship that can fill your heart the way only the love of God for you can. C.S. Lewis is really helpful here. He uses an analogy that I know is familiar to a lot of us, but he says we are like um, children who have been offered a vacation on Anna Maria Island, but we are content to go on making mud pies in the cul-de-sacs of our neighborhood. Our problem, Lewis said, was that we are far too easily, excuse me, he says our, our desires are not too weak. They are... are I messed that up. Our desires are not too strong. They are, in fact, too weak. Our problem is that we're far too easily pleased. We spend money, and we're content to do so. We spend on what is not bread. We exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of things that cannot satisfy. We pursue life that is not life. And so God comes comes to us, and he says this, verse 3, come to me. Look at verse 3, come to me that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love. The psalmist saying, your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. His love is better than any other love because it's free. And that's why you should go to him to faith. Secondly, so we see the call to faith. And there's my argument. It's Isaiah's argument for why you should believe. But secondly, let's look and see what it means to repent because he also calls us to repentance here. And then let me make a case for why you should repent. God is inviting us not only to faith but also to repentance. You see in verse 7, let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. And repentance just means to change. It is a change in your thinking that is so profound that it changes the way you feel and then begins to change the way 
that you live. Now notice how, notice how thoughts and ways are linked here. Verse 7 is an example of parallelism. He talks about thoughts and ways, and they're linked together. Two lines there that make the same point but use slightly different language. So our ways, our day-to-day lives, how we spend our time and our money, and the way we make decisions, all of those ways are built upon a foundation of thoughts and ideas about the way the world works, value judgments about what's good and what's bad. And this is why I'm so concerned about the way we're increasingly becoming siloed how social media and their algorithms intentionally keep us from being exposed to new ideas and just reinforce in, with a louder voice the things we already believe. We no longer listen to people who disagree with us. We no longer have access to people who disagree with us. So we can consider their positions. We're completely shut off from being exposed to new ideas. We, what we do with people who disagree with us is we immediately discredit them. We're being powerfully shaped by these cultural dynamics, and it's a really big spiritual problem. Here's why. We are naturally anti-repentance. Can I, you with me? We are naturally anti-repentance. And it's becoming harder and harder to be a person who, as a normal, everyday part of life, has this kind of experience where you say, you know what, I was wrong. Hmm. I've given it some thought. I've changed my mind. Wow, this is great. When's the last time you had that experience with somebody? You know, but spiritually, that's exactly the kind of thing that we should be doing, and we should be doing it all the time. It should be happening all the time. We should be suspicious of ourselves and expecting to learn and change because of course we're wrong about lots of stuff. We've been wrong about the most important stuff. We're probably wrong about some policy issues too. Or wrong about, you know, who our neighbors actually are. See, in the Bible, the know-it-all who has nothing to learn from people who disagree with him is called a fool. The wise person is the one that knows that they don't know and they're open to being challenged and they expect to be changing their mind all the time. And here's the thing, this is where a relationship with God begins. The Bible says that we all, everyone, have turned to our own way. That's Isaiah 53, 6. We've turned to our own way. That's a description of sin, to turn away from God, to stop listening to him, to start thinking for ourselves and doing life on our own. That's, that's the definition of sin. And it's what we're encouraging people. It's what we call courage now in our culture. But to become a Christian, you have to abandon your own way and do a full 180 on some issues as the Lord confronts them, as you become aware of them and turn back to him. I, I, heard, I, I read a story this, this week that I was not familiar with, and I'm, I'm surprised that I, after all these years I wasn't familiar with, but you've heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, Alfred Nobel, who was a Swedish chemist, and he actually invented dynamite. And he was motivated in the, invent, in the inventing of dynamite. <laughs> this is kind of a naive guy, but nevertheless. He was, he was motivated because he really believed that this invention would be uh, the, the, the ceasing of all wars because it would make the losses in war so devastating that no one, of course, would... It's kind of the, the, kind of the same thinking with the, with the atomic bomb, right? And, of course... So he invented dynamite, which became this incredible tool uh, in warfare and so forth and caused a great deal of death and carnage. And, uh, and just, so just the opposite of what he intended happened. But one day he woke up and he read his own obituary. The papers reported his death 
and they called him a merchant of death who had grown enormously rich by developing a way to kill more people uh, than the world had ever seen. Now, it was a mistake. It was actually his brother who had died. But reading the obituary, he saw himself for the first time as the villain and not the hero. And so what he did was, is in response, he completely changed his life. He took his enormous wealth and created the Nobel Peace Prize to award scientists and leaders whose work most promoted peace. It's an illustration of repentance, of saying, wow, I've realized the trajectory my life has been on and how wrong it has been, and I'm going to completely turn around and go the other direction. There is no such thing as faith without repentance, and I wish I had time to unpack that, but it's going to have to stand for itself this morning. There is no faith without also repentance. Faith, by definition, involves a turning to God, which means a turning away. But why? Why again? Let me, let me answer that question. I'm much more concerned to do that. Why should we go through all the hard work and pain of repentance? It's hard to admit that you're wrong and change, isn't it? Can I get, can I get somebody to testify to that? Isn't that so hard? And it's becoming, it's becoming harder. It's becoming more uncommon because of the cultural factors at work. And again, it's a simple argument. He calls us to repentance there in verses 6 and 7, and then verses 8 and 9, he begins to give us the reasons, he says. And this is the familiar part of the passage. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and your, my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, we typically use these verses to say something like this. Well, you know, God is always doing more than we know, and we may not understand, but it's because his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours, and we're too small to understand, and so we have to trust him. And all that is true, but that is not what Isaiah is saying. <laughs> the lesson here is that God is not like us, precisely because he, unlike us, is kind and gracious and forgiving. So Dane Orland said it is a statement, listen to this, it is a statement not of the surprise of God's mysterious providence, but of the surprise of God's compassionate heart. And you see that. Look at the verses just before. Let the wicked forsake his ways, verse 7, and return, that the Lord might have compassion on him and, our, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my... So what I did in my Bible is I circled that four there in verse 8 and then, drew a, and then drew a line back up to verse 7 because the surprise in verses 8 and 9 is what he says about himself in verse 7. We don't repent often because we have a tiny view of God's heart. And we're not just a few degrees off, guys. It says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, we could not be more wrong. When it comes to our sin, we're hesitant to return to the Lord because we expect to be treated harshly. We make up our minds what God is like because of our experience. We collectively are prone to be unforgiving. We hold grudges. We make one another pay for the wrongs that we've done, but God is not like us. He does not think like we do. His thoughts of love and ways of compassion stretch to a degree beyond our mental horizon. They don't express the enormous gulf between God and man. Just the opposite. This was John Calvin's insight. He said these words here. He said, men are wont to judge and measure God for themselves. For their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased. Therefore, they think that they cannot be reconciled to God when they have offended him. But the Lord shows that he is far from resembling man. Isn't that great news? <laughs> God's not like the, the mean, ugly people that you know. He's not like you when you're mean and ugly. 
Jesus' story of the prodigal son teaches us this lesson well. The young son who had badly blown it expects to be received with a scowl and a lecture, but the father instead runs and embraces him with hugs and kisses. And it's a picture of what Jesus said earlier in Luke 15, verse 7, that heaven rejoices when sinners repent. Listen, when there is repentance, there is no wagging finger. There is no I told you so in the holding of grudges. When we turn from our way and return home to God, when we turn from following our own hearts and going our own way and we come back to him, heaven throws a party. And so it's grace again, see? The motivation for believing, remember, was the freeness of the offer, the grace of it. The motivation for repenting is knowing that God has promised not to treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay according to our iniquities. In similar language, in Psalm 103, he says, as, the high, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my steadfast love towards you. And as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. In other words, you don't repent and turn from your sins and turn back to God in the hopes that he will forgive and move to take away your sin. You repent because he has already promised to do so. And he's already moved to do so in sending Jesus Christ into the world to die upon the cross in your place. God, this is an important point to make. Don't miss this. God does not love you because Jesus died. Jesus came and died because God loves you. It's an important distinction to make. An important distinction to make. Jesus did not force God to love you. See, that's the problem with that way of thinking is we can hold on to this idea that God is just, he's kind of, he really, okay, fine. He kind of says when Jesus finishes, you know, dying upon the cross, okay, I get it, I'll do it. No, Jesus didn't force God to love us. Jesus was the love of God. He was the kindness of God appearing in flesh and blood. But here's the last thing because we need to come to a close. It is a mistake to think that faith and repentance, as I've been describing, are one-time events. That you do them once, and then you're like, glad I got done with that. Let's move on to something else. That you do it when you first become a Christian, and then you don't ever have to do it again. It's also a mistake to think that you grow and mature in your spiritual life as you do so, that it will mean less faith and repentance, when actually it will mean more. The story is told of Rich Mullins, who is a Christian music artist, songwriter, I guess is what you're supposed to call them these days. He's at a concert in Texas, and he told the story of how as a kid he would walk the aisle at summer camp every year and rededicate his life to Jesus. <laughs> Anybody have that experience? Every year, summer camp, doing that again. But he said, but in college, uh, what happened is he, as he went into college is he started to do it about every six months. And then he realized, <laughs> as he became a young adult, that it was quarterly, and then by the time he was well into his ministry and adult, he said, I do it now about four times a day. <laughs> Tish, Harrison, Tish Harrison Warren told that story to illustrate ongoing repentance. She wrote, repentance and faith are the constant daily rhythms of the Christian life, our breathing in and our breathing out. Repentance is not usually a moment wrought in high drama. It is the steady drumbeat of the life in Christ. I like that. Repentance is not usually a moment wrought in high drama. It's the steady drumbeat of life in Christ. Ray Ortland has said this. He said, if you're so good at Christianity that you need Jesus less than when you, when you began, <laughs> you're not doing it right. <laughs> he said, you've completely lost your way. But if 
if you find yourself needing him more today than when you started, then you're doing it right. See, the passage ends with a description of the person who's being changed by God's word. This is verses 10 through 13. You see that? The word goes out from God's mouth with supernatural power. It's like rain. Rain that waters the ground and makes the crops grow. The word goes out from God and accomplishes something. It doesn't return empty. He says, by his power, it seeps into the hearts of those who hear. And then beginning in verse 12, we get a picture of what it accomplishes in its beautiful language. Look there, he says, it says, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. In other words, it's this picture of personal supernatural transformation and a new joy, a new intimacy with God that is so powerful that it begins not only to change you, but to change everything and everybody that you come in contact with. Creation, all the way out to creation itself, which is released into this newfound joy and new relationship with God that ultimately leads to the reversing of the curse of sin. You see the language? Thorns, which are the sign and symbol of our, of our broken relationship with God, thorns begin to give way to trees. And so we have a picture here of a transformed people Inhabiting a transformed world and all of it making a name for the Lord because it is his power and his love that accomplished all of it. And the lesson we're to learn is this, that this is what can happen among a people who are committed to hearing God's word and taking it to heart and being open to being changed by what they learn. Spiritual stagnation is due to toxic thoughts about ourselves and God that settle into stale ways of life that hold no power and no joy. God's word goes out every Sunday. God's word goes out every morning as we read his word together as a community. His word goes out to correct our wrong ideas, but are we listening? Or do you already know what you believe? You have nothing else to learn. Are we seeking him? As if his word is the very words of life. Or have, have you already arrived? See, one of these wrong thoughts that leads to the wrong ways is the idea that you become a Christian by believing and repenting, but then you go, go back and you grow spiritually by trying hard. And so we just are gonna finish where we started. The doing Jesus calls us to, remember from John 6, the the doing Jesus calls us to is believing. Human effort does not push the fruit of the new creation up out of the ground. Believing and repenting do. I like J.I. Packer's definition of repentance, and so let me just close with it. He says, and I wish I could have gotten this in there for you, but we've, we've said this before, but this is really, really helpful. He says, repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. It's turning, as much of you, it's turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. There are always more depths of sin that we can become aware of. There are always more insights that we can gain into who we are and where we came from and why we behave the way that we do. There's always ways to be surprised into what God says about himself, which means there's always more believing and repenting to do. And as we believe and repent and believe and repent and breathe in and breathe out, the more we do, the deeper it goes. And that is when the cypress begins to come up instead of the thorn. And the myrtle begins to grow out of the briar.
And so we're people, no matter where we are on the spectrum of faith, we're people this morning who are here before the Lord as his word goes out and comes to us, who would say, along with John Newton in a lesser known hymn of his, Dear Savior, we adore thee for thy precious life and death. Melt each stubborn heart before thee. Give us all the eye of faith. From the law's condemning sentence to thy mercy we appeal. Thou alone canst give repentance. Thou alone our souls canst heal. Would you pray with me as we prepare to come to his table this morning? So, Father, grant to us just that. The gifts of repentance and faith, that is the irony, uh, that as I have called us to faith and repentance, these are things that we cannot, they're not just another, we can't turn them into another work that we have to do. These are gifts that have to come from you. And so we would say to you, here we are. We are completely at your mercy. We are completely in your hands Father, there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing. We have nothing, nothing to bring to you. We come with empty hands, clinging only to the cross. We come with dirty clothes needing to be cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus. We come with nothing to recommend ourselves to you, but with only the hope that your heart is, in fact, what you say it is in this text believing these words to be true, that you are not like us, that you stand ready to forgive, that you are compassionate and kind, so much so you've proven it by coming yourself in the person of Jesus into the world to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died. And that is, that is our grand and glorious gospel. So help us to believe and help us to keep repenting until the cypress begins to come up out of the thorns, to make a name for you, to give glory to you, which is what you desire and we desire it too. So would you do it even now as we gather around this table to yet again believe and repent, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, not if you just get it right all the time, but if your faith is in the Lord Jesus and if you're in the middle of a, of a lifestyle, a life process of repentance and faith, uh, then receive this benediction because it is the promise uh, to you that as we go now, just what we sing is true, that God is for us. His love is a strong and mighty fortress. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.